Good morning, Grace Covenant. It is a privilege for me to stand here and to uh, preach uh, from the word of the Lord. Um, So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 21, verses 1 to 19, and uh, read along with me. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were, far, they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said this to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Um, let me pray for us real quick. Heavenly Father, I, uh, I thank you for of this privilege and this honor to preach uh, your word before my brothers and sisters. Um, Lord, I pray that um, as your word is preached, uh, that you would empty me of myself, Father, that uh, you would speak through me, um, and I pray that your word would speak to it, it for itself. 
Father, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand the truth that is found here in your word. Um, And so, Lord, I pray that you would be with me now, and in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, Before I I do get in, I want to thank the youth, because we've spent the better part of a year going through the Gospel of John together, which has been a real privilege. Um, And obviously, this is the last chapter in the Gospel of John, so this took us almost, well, over a year to get to this point. Um, And during the course of that year, uh, we spent a lot of time talking together and and going through this together, and I learned a lot from them. Um, So this will kind of, I'll do a little bit of a recap to talk about the Gospel of John. It's, It's an evangelical gospel. Probably of all the Gospels, the most evangelical. John even gives his purpose for this in chapter 20, verse 30. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John clearly wants for the people who are reading this Gospel to come to believe in Jesus, that they will be saved. Um, So his goal is to have people believe in the truth of who Jesus is, that Jesus is indeed who he claims to be. And one of the things that he does to push this is that, we talked about this with the youth, is that he sort of, in the second half of the Gospel of John, begins to compare the reactions of different people to Jesus. And the three people that he focuses on are John, or the disciple whom Jesus loved, Judas, and Peter. Now John, in the Gospel of John, is seen to be somebody who is quite faithful. When all the disciples scatter, the disciple whom Jesus loved is there standing with Jesus as he's being tried by um, the Sanhedrin. He is the one who is at the crucifixion and is told by Jesus, hey, my mother is now your duty to to care for. Um, And this is the picture of, of a positive reaction to Jesus, of people who have faith in Jesus and choose to follow him. And then we have Judas, who willingly chooses to not follow Jesus, in fact, goes so far as to betray him that Jesus would be led unto death. Judas has chosen to not follow Jesus. And then in the middle, we have Peter, who is at first uh, a very loud, almost boastful, zealous voice for his loyalty and faithfulness to Christ. But when it comes down to it, He denies Christ publicly three times, probably within earshot of Jesus. And so Peter is somebody who may feel good about Christ, but up until this point, he's somebody who has not really chosen to fully follow Jesus. And I think that John is going to use the interaction between Jesus and Peter to show what forgiveness and restoration looks like. The first half of this passage shows the disciples kind of going back to normal. 
And there are people who have speculated and they've said, oh, this shows that the disciples have become total apostates. And I don't think it's that at all. They see and they recognize that it's Jesus who sits on the shore and they get excited, right? These are just men who, we, we don't see apostates. We don't see people who have com committed to leaving Jesus. But we also don't see the spirit-filled um, ministry-driven people that we see in Acts after Pentecost. We see men who sort of don't really know that they have a mission yet. And so they go back to what they know. They decide to go fishing. They're, they still need to provide for their families. And not walking around following Jesus, they have to go fishing. So they get out on the boat, and that night they catch nothing. Um, <clears throat> And what I think is important in this, in this passage is to, to note Jesus' continued provision. Obviously, there's a miracle where they cast the net onto the side and they, load, they, they pull in this load of fish um, that is 153 large fish. Um, but I think one of the, the interesting things is sort of after this miracle happens, just how ordinary this might have been for them just to come and break bread with the one that they followed for so many years. Um, so even as they've gotten, gotten back to normal life, Jesus comes and meets them where they are and he even cooks breakfast for them, which is a great argument for breakfast fellowships, right? Um, so this reminds us of, of Jesus' provision, right? And it reminds us of the time that he is breaking bread and feeding the 5,000 with bread and fish. But there Jesus is, ready again to provide for his disciples when they are in need. And the interesting part that we're going to focus on is the conversation that Peter has with Jesus. Um, Peter is has fallen. He denied Christ, and it was a very strong disowning of Christ, uh, such that it happens three times, and on the third time, Matthew records for us that he even utters curses and oaths in his denial of Christ. And of course, afterward, he weeps because he realizes what he has done. Peter has fallen. Peter has sinned against his, his Lord. Imagine, so then, then imagine being Peter. And after you've finished that meal, Jesus turns to you and, and he looks at you and says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than they do, more than the other? Do you love me more than the other disciples do? Um, Peter was the one that disowned Jesus, the other disciples did not publicly deny him. So imagine how this must have stung Peter to have that question asked. The man who so zealously boasted of his faith. And we know how it felt for Peter because it's said that he weeps. At the third time, he weeps. He's reminded of his denial, his own betrayal of Christ. 
But what this passage is not about is about beating Peter down. It's not about making Peter feel bad for his sin. It's about Christ giving forgiveness and restoring a man who has fallen. And I think there's two big points that we have to take away from this passage. The first is the necessity that we have to restore those who have fallen. Peter's story in the Gospel of John ends with him being restored. And this is clear when Christ's response to Peter three times calls upon him to do the work, the gospel work, of being a shepherd and tending to Jesus' flock. Now, you only do this to somebody that you've restored, right? That you've said, I, I, I give you back your position as one of my disciples, even though you denied me. So rather than beating Peter down for his sin, what Christ chooses to do is to restore him. And this is totally consistent with what Christ has said before in John 3, 17. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This demonstrates a practical lesson, not just for church leadership, but for leadership in the home, the workplace, and all other walks of life, that the response to someone falling in sin is to restore rather than to punish. The goal is to bring someone into repentance and restore them as a part of the sanctification process, which is what Christ does. And this is counter to the world that deals with the fallen by destroying them. And I think there's two general reactions to people who have fallen. In this day and age, it's you will never be forgiven. It doesn't matter how long ago that was, you made a mistake that was grievous, that was offensive, you will never be forgiven, even if you ask for forgiveness. It's to punish people, right? To seek retribution against them. And the other is to just say, eh, it's, no, don't worry about it, right? And those are the two responses of the world to people being fallen. It's not to restore. There's no room for redemption. There's no room for repentance in a worldly response to people who have fallen. And so when people fall, which we all do, it is not the place of the Christian to sit in judgment, but to be an instrument of restoration and grace in someone's life. And this is why church discipline is designed the way it is. That it's designed to bring someone back, to restore someone, to bring them into repentance and lead them into sanctification. And this is also one of the reasons it fails. Because either people refuse to repent or because misguided Discipline can often be more about punishing people than it is about restoring them. Christ's example shows incredible mercy to Peter, who betrayed Christ specifically. He shows incredible mercy to Peter that we as Christians are also supposed to extend to others who have stumbled. 
And this is precisely how the Holy Spirit works in our lives, right? Not to condemn us and to reject us and to beat us down, but to lead us as believers, as those who call upon the name of God into repentance, sanctification, and restore us. The second point that I think is quite clear in this passage is that Christian forgiveness demands reconciliation. Peter had a deeply close relationship with Jesus. And this is evidenced by the fact that he is one of the most mentioned apostles in the Gospels and in Acts. Right? Peter is focused on all the time. And it's said that he was the oldest of the apostles. So he was sort of the de facto leader among them. Right? That he was the, the older brother. And for those of you that have had experience with Asian cultures, you know, the, the, in Korean, the hyang, or in Filipino, the kuya, is, is somebody who is basically, by virtue of being older, sort of a leader. And so Peter had a special relationship with Christ. And even Jesus calls his disciples his friends in John 15, 15. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. The logos, the word made flesh, comes down and calls these 12 guys his friends. We often forget that Jesus had very real, very human relationships with people. He was close to Peter. And so this should not be overlooked that Jesus would have been truly wounded by what Peter did and their relationship would have been broken because of that. In the same way that any of us would have a broken relationship with somebody who has done wrong to us, especially somebody that's close, like family or close friends. And anyone who has experienced that kind of uh, hurt, you know what that feels like. See, Peter's denial of Christ was not simply refusal to publicly acknowledge the theological claims of Christ, but it was to abandon and betray a friend who needed him. So what Christ does in this passage is amazing because he not only forgives Peter of his sins, but he reconciles his relationship with Peter. Christ asks Peter three times if he loves him, symbolically forgiving each instance of denial, which is amazing for somebody who has, if you have sinned in that way, for someone to say, I'm giving you the opportunity here to cancel out all those times. Um, because Peter's actions can't speak for himself. His actions revealed that he disowned Jesus. But what Christ is doing is allowing Peter's confession and declaration of love for Jesus to have the last word. And this is why Peter keeps saying, you know that I love you. Peter knows that his actions were counter to all the zeal that he expressed for Christ following his arrest. And this reveals to us Peter's relationship with Christ reconciled. 
that it's, it's not remaining in a broken state. That not only has Jesus restored Peter, but the relationship that they had as friends, as brothers, the disciple disciple right? The discipler-disciple relationship has been restored. The relationship of friend has been restored. The relationship of God and, and servant has been restored. This is a picture of the gospel. And it's almost, it's an immediate example of what Christ's death and resurrection has accomplished. Total restoration or total reconciliation with God. And Christ rises from the dead and then goes and actually shows his disciples what was just purchased for them. That even sin like Peter's can be forgiven. And even the worst of sins, it doesn't matter. You can be reconciled to a God who has died on the cross for sin. See, like Peter, our sins have not just been overlooked. We have not just been given a heavenly legal status declaring us righteous. It doesn't stop there. We have been made whole in Christ As Jesus explains to Nicodemus in John 3, right? This is what it is to be born again, to be made new. And so with Christ, a new eschatological reality now exists. That in the wonderful reality of already not yet, we have a completely restored relationship with God. The fullness of which we will taste in the new heaven and new earth. And this is the application for us believers. That Christian forgiveness is bound to restoration like we see with Christ and Peter. The world has a couple ways of forgiving. And the one is, again, to never forgive. To cling to the hurt, the anger, the bitterness, to seek vengeance. And the other is to kind of just say, you know what, just let go for yourself. Like, they don't matter. Just let go of the burden and forgive them so you can move on with your life. That's not the gospel picture. That is not the gospel picture of forgiveness and reconciliation. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 31 to 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See, forgiving is to do for one another what God has done for us. And if that's the case, then Peter and Christ here is a roadmap for us. Christian forgiveness, therefore, enacts the eschatological realities of being reconciled with God into the relationships of those around us, particularly those within the body of Christ. Right, we've been talking, Pastor David has talked so long about what Christian unity is, that we're not supposed to be at each other's throats, that we're not supposed to be withholding forgiveness from each other, that we are supposed to be unified under Christ together, having been united with him and therefore with one another. And so we have to ask ourselves this, am I trying to pursue reconciliation in my forgiveness of others? 
Am I trying to pursue a restored relationship? Or am I okay with relationships that are still remaining broken? This challenged me so much this week about the relationships I have in my life where it was just left at, I'll forget about the bad things you did to me, but I'm never going to trust you again. God really convicted me about those places in my life where I have withheld reconciliation from others in the same Unlike how Christ has reconciled me to God the Father. Another thing we have to ask ourselves is, am I repenting for how I have wronged others? Right? We see Peter is repentant. Immediately after he denies Christ, he begins to weep because he is fully aware of what he has just done. And Peter's weeping here when Jesus asks him the third time. You know, maybe it's from frustration. Maybe it's from just an overwhelming sense of the weight of what he's done, but the magnitude of what Christ is forgiving. While also restoring him and giving him a place in gospel ministry once again, and, and arguably even more so in giving Peter not just the honor of serving Christ, but even telling Peter here in verse 19 that he is going to share in Jesus' death, that Peter is also going to die and he will be crucified. I want to read briefly from 2 Corinthians verse 5, uh, 17 to 21. It says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Therefore, for our sake, he made him sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have been given a ministry of reconciliation. And that means that we restore people. That means that we seek to restore those who have fallen. And even when people have sinned against us, what the Apostle Paul is saying, and what all of Scripture is saying, that it's not good enough to simply say, all right, forget about it. Don't worry about it. That we are to have ministry of reconciliation. That we are to have hearts that pursue people to be restored to faith in Christ. I want to share a, a story um, 
of a pastor in Korea. He's one of my, I, I love his story. His name is Yang Won Son. I'll call him Pastor Son. Uh, pastor Son was a Korean pastor who lived through the Japanese annexation of Korea, World War II, and into the beginning years of the Korean War. He became a pastor, and his ministry began serving at a leper colony. His legacy there, ministering to those with Hansen's disease, is marked by a deep love for them. He regularly laid hands on them in order to care for their wounds and pray for them. And when his colleagues warned him of the risk, hey, you could catch the disease yourself. Don't touch them. His response would always be good, because then if I did get sick, I could live with them and minister, them, minister to them permanently. During World War II, life changed for Pastor Son. The Japanese Imperial Army had said, you must put these Shinto shrines and bow down to the emperor into your churches. Pastor Son said no. So um, in response to that, he was taken away to be re-educated and tortured until he agreed to let those shrines be worshipped. And it never took. Twice he was taken for that. And twice he refused to be re-educated. His public ministry continued after that, after World War II ended. And uh, communism began to make its way down, and the Korean War had broken out. And at one point, the, 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 commun the, the, the communist uh, army makes it almost down to the peninsula, to the end of the Korean peninsula, and then they're pushed back. And during that time, there was a, a, a riot that broke out. And in that riot, uh, a, a group of young men just kind of tore through the city that he lived in. And they ended up at Pastor Son's house where they murdered his two sons. Eventually, order was restored, and the one responsible for pulling the trigger, killing his two sons, was brought to justice. And it was a, a young man named Chase Hun. And he was sentenced to be executed for double homicide and for all the other things that, that he had done uh, during that, uh, those riots. And the day of his execution, though, Pastor Sohn decided to intervene, and he sent his daughter with a message to the executioners. said, don't execute this man. Instead, release him into my custody that I may adopt him. So Pastor Sohn after much confusion and clarification, made it very clear, I want to adopt this young man as my son. And he did. He stayed his execution, adopted him as his own son, led him to Christ, and Chason eventually becomes a follower of Jesus and a pastor. Now, the testimony of men like Pastor Son and, and uh, in, in Korea have a long and rich and deep legacy in shaping the entire country uh, to the point where it goes from, in a matter of about 60 years, from being 2% Christian to being 30% Christian. See, stories like this, like Pastor Sohn's and, and what we see in John 21 and what we see all throughout Scripture with the Apostle Paul's testimony and people being forgiven and restored despite heinous and terrible sins, right? They leave 
a legacy. They, they are a testimony to something about who Jesus is. And they leave us all scratching our heads saying, how did they do that? See, Christian forgiveness is inexplicably powerful. And it is, on one hand, incomprehensible in the depth of which, like Christ, Christians are capable of forgiving, while at the same time being the most fragrant of scents in a world marred by sin, pain, failure, and despair. Christian forgiveness does not only offer the dismissal of sins against the Creator, but the restoration of the person and an invitation to relationship that is not found outside the bounds of the gospel of Jesus. If we are to spread this gospel, then our forgiveness must resemble the forgiveness of Christ, which modeled in Christ restores people and reconciles relationships. It's a task which in the flesh is extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult in the face of the hurtful, the heinous, and even the consistent transgressions against us and, and others. And it can only be accomplished by remembering the forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation given to us through Christ. God has offered us no other way to forgive. Part and parcel of Christian ministry and life is to generously offer the sweeping forgiveness to others that was offered to us by Christ and to seek to restore those who have fallen. I will end by reading this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin, the sin that is left over without any excuse after all allowances have been made and seeing in it all its horror, dirt, meanness, and malice, and nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the man who has done it. Is this not what Christ has done for us? Let us then go and do that for others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have restored us. We thank you that you have um, not just said, hey, I'll, I'll overlook it, but that you have totally given us relationship with God that was broken so, so long ago in the fall. And we thank you that you offer to us the kindness that can only be found in you, Jesus that even though we transgress against you every day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you come and you restore us each and every day, and that your work on the cross is the final word. We thank you, Lord, that you have offered us total reconciliation with God. Let us be the kind of people that do not hold transgressions against one another, but seek the restoration of the person and the reconciliation of relationships. Let us, Lord, love those who have, as you have loved us. Let us show mercy to those who, like us, don't deserve mercy. Let us, Lord, forgive as you have forgiven and reconcile with those whom it is hard to reconcile with. We pray, Lord, that we would be a church and a people marked by the unusual and strange desire 
to love our enemies as ourselves, to turn the other cheek and to even hate those who persecute us. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would press that on our heart to reconcile broken relationships, to seek to restore those who have fallen and those who are broken, knowing that you have done so much more for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.